Hello and welcome back to We Not Me, the podcast where we explore how humans connect to get stuff done together. I'm Dan Hammond. And I am Pia Lee. And how are you? Tootling along very nice, but it's in it's our last episode of season one. I know. I'm feeling a little bit I'm grieving. Bereft. I know. I've been enjoying this this little weekly conversations that we've been having and um yeah. It's been a very enjoyable an insightful experience. Yes, and on the backdrop of a um of a of a tumultuous year for everyone, I think. Um it's been an interesting time, a, a useful time I hope to launch a podcast all about we not me. I do. I hope so. I hope so. And you know, it was unbeknownst to this year and everything that it's taught us. I was given a book called Humankind by Rutger Bregman and um and sent a copy to you and that I think has probably nourished us over the over this year, given us insight and yeah, really interesting. I, I you know, he, I'm not sure if our listeners have read it, of course, but um, definitely strongly recommend it. But he, um, you know, it's called um, you know a hopeful history, and I, I, he debunks a lot of myths about how we view each other, and uh, we have a lot of these stories we tell each other, some backed by experiments he debunks them and talks about how actually we are kind to each other and what really jumped out for me is very very serious research very well researched solid book but he it amused me that he he opens his epilogue with um by talking about the film love actually um and um and I, i'm just going to read the quote now richard from richard curtis the the writer and director if you make a film about a man kidnapping a woman and chaining her to a radiator for five years something that's happened probably once in history it's called searingly realistic analysis of society if i make a film like love actually which is about people falling in love and there are about a million people falling in love in britain today it's called a sentimental presentation of an unrealistic world you know that really hit me when i read it to think yeah you know we tell these terrible stories about ourselves in reality you know uh, and this is going to sound cheesy but love is all around pierre you know what I'm saying? Oh, it is. I mean, we could just break out into a bit of a tune here, but but we'll save people for that terrible thing. Um, but it is interesting because quite often we're working with teams and we talk about this. People think, oh, gosh, you're going to be sentimental. However, and I had an experience of this today, it's where the team leans in. It's what we are all craving and we just need to understand, I think, a bit of the neuroscience that sits behind that and how things work. So none better than Gillian Coots, who is incredibly well versed in this, understands the brain, understands research and understands resilience and kindness uh, and mindfulness. So she desperately tried to teach me how to meditate, which I'm afraid she did fail. But all the rest of it, she is absolutely awesome so let's head over and um and hear what she's got to say Gillian so lovely to have you on this last of season one how are you I am really well, thank you. I'm currently sitting here in Lightning Ridge, which if anyone's listening and getting out a map of Australia, it's kind of up towards Queensland border, about halfway across New South Wales, surrounded by piles of dirt and fossicking opal miners. 
Boff. Great. Well, far, far flung from where I'm sitting on the floor in my son's bedroom with no furniture, but, but currently posting from Ninjago, which is his favourite book. So just tell us, we've had some great experiences of working together, but tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. So we uh, are the country director in Australia for Potential Project, and we do leadership development and team development around the world. Basically, looking at the way our minds work and very specifically around the neuroscience and then how do you develop new neural pathways and train your mind to be able to become a clearer, more resilient, more um, more wise, God forbid, in uh, challenging situations and uncertainty. So it's been a really, it's been a wild ride over the last 18 months as we've had to completely pivot our um, organisation from in-person to online conversations and delivery but it's a great great i love working with leaders and and their people humans are great what a big a big 18 months well nearly two years it's now been for all of us so in the work that you do what's that experience been like for you well i think my biggest learning at the uh start was we kind of end up teaching what we most need to learn right so my very first experience of the pandemic when it when it hit back in march 2020 um, was I was in the middle of a, um, actually, ironically, an online session with a travel company. And and it was right in the middle of when Scott Morrison announced that they were closing the borders of Australia. And so this radically, like this meant that this company was going to be radically affected by that. And they've made major shareholders, all sorts of things. So I'm um, publicly listed. And so one by one, people started dropping off the call. And I'm like, oh, this this isn't good and I'm being calm and I'm being you know, inclusive and all of those things. But by the end of that day, I'd realised that all of the work that we had planned was going to be cancelled. And you know, uh, that, that, that's, I'm the primary breadwinner for our family and there was nothing going to be coming in. So I, I did what all good resilience uh, facilitators would do and I promptly got a migraine and ended up in hospital. <laughs> and totally, totally lost it. And, um, and I was lying in bed in the hospital while all of the machines are beeping and I just I needed to be hydrated. And um and I'm thinking, oh my God, who am I if I can't even last twenty four hours into a crisis? Yeah, what is this? And the and the and the irony of the was the next day I actually had to, to deliver another online session about resilience. I'm just looking at myself going, You are such a sham. There's no situation that can't be made worse by our own self criticism, is there? Totally. Just and the, just lay in, just lay in, stick the boot in, go on, go for it. And I think that was that that was where the training did kick in. So because I suddenly went, "Wow, look at that! I'm in a really shocking situation, and I'm just making it a hell of a lot worse." What'll happen? Will happen, and and let's see what happens next. And of course, I eventually recovered and got up and did the resilience session. Of course, told the story about that. Everyone laughed, and we got on with it. So it was like this. But the biggest insight for me in that was. I think I, while I knew that resilience wasn't just about being bulletproof, I think I still held in the vestige of myself as a, you know, a recovering perfectionist that resilience really is being bulletproof, of never falling over, of never having a problem. And it just turns up in different disguises at different points of your life, as you say. As you oh, rec- it's bullshit, right? <laughs> we, we, all, <laughs> we all completely fall over and... And it's your ability to get up again and your ability, and it makes us human. And in fact, our ability to share that humanity is what enables the 
deeper potential, the vulnerability, the risks, all of that sort of stuff. So I think that that theme I've seen play out again and again and again over the last 18 months has been amazing. Given that we're all about we, not me, how did you pivot that learning and and think, you know, how, how am I going to contribute maybe on a community sense or a group sense, particularly when, when, our, when our businesses are impacted? It's easy to go into our shell, isn't it? Totally. I, I can remember sitting in the backyard after that. So it was then the weekend, the Sunday after the Wednesday of the Scott Morrison border closing announcement. And I'm sitting in the backyard going, right, well, so if I'm not going to earn any money for the next couple of, you know, at least we thought six months at that point, right? I'm like, well, what could I do? And I think the biggest thing for me was if I focus on myself, I'm going to go nuts. So how's everyone else going in this? And so just in a simple community level, there's 120 houses in our street. I wonder how they're all going. I wonder how they're feeling. And I was a long way, like, you know, 1,200 kilometres away from my parents. So I was like, well, I'd want someone to reach out to my parents. And, and then, in fact, they did. Um, but so we put together a bunch of flyers and, and was like, right, I'm going to, I printed them out. I'm like, going to deliver them around the street. This is my Sunday morning activity. And in my head, I'm like, oh man, I'm still not entirely recovered from being in hospital. I wonder if someone could help. So I put out a little note. We had a WhatsApp group for our um, street, put out a little note and, and said, can anyone help me deliver flyers? And within five minutes, I had, I think it was six families that came forward and said, yeah, we'll deliver flyers. This will be great. And so we, we met COVIDly appropriately distanced in the little park in our street and we handed out the flyers. And it, I can't tell you, it gives me goosebumps even to talk about it now, that the look on people's faces as they were coming towards me to get the almost makes them cry. The, um, this, and the conversations that they were having with family, because they were making meaning of the situation as they walked towards me. I could hear them saying, when the proverbial hits the fan, right, we have to look out for each other. This is what we do. This is who we are as humans. This is how we are as a family. And and it just really made me realise that when you help people help, you help people hope. So there's this bridge, I think, that was really powerful for me around helping. This is what we do. And then, it was, then you couldn't help noticing. You saw within organisations when people came together because the whole business had been interrupted, for example, and there was this, like this euphoric phase where everyone was like, man, I'm in. Like, what do we need to do? Like the, There was some teams that came together in the most extraordinary way at that time and and communities and all sorts of things that we didn't expect that would happen that humans started doing for each other, which I thought was amazing. In that story, you thought we, not me, because you thought who could help, and then you gave other people the chance to help, and they took up the, they took took your offer. It sounds so natural and so wonderful. What what stops us doing this? What gets in the way? It's not always the case, and sometimes it takes a disaster like COVID to co- make this happen. It's so interesting because Dan, I got really curious about what was it like this feeling of collaboration and connection that we're seeing in teams and seeing in the community. I was like, well, if you could bottle it, what is it? What is that? So I started actually studying and researching and collecting stories about what was going on. And it was really interesting because I think there was a couple of things that came into it. The first was this, COVID was like a massive pattern interu- interruption, right? We we got off autopilot. We'd been so busy with our, you know, blah, blah, blah of our everyday lives. 
that there's something about the pattern interrupt that means that we start to notice other people in a different way, which I think is really interesting. So I think there's, I think it's partly about the pattern interruption and the interesting the disaster research, which I morbidly then got fascinated by. It would would back up the same thing that ninety five percent of people will move towards a disaster to help rather than run away, but um it also it, in a sense it gave people the interruption gave people time, so they were they weren't um, commuting in the same way. So there was suddenly this bubble of time, and it was almost like um well, do you know that uh, was it apogee that when you get when you're in flight and that that it's that moment when a plane goes way up in the sky. There's a moment when everyone becomes weightless, as then it goes plummeting back to earth. That kind of ah, there's this point of apogee. It was like we were stuck in this moment where everyone was a bit terrified. I think is actually terrified would be the other word exactly. But everyone's kind of weightless, yeah, and, and ungrounded, and not really knowing oh, what's it all about. Really unusual situation. I think that's what the space we were in, and so that allowed people then to to um, kind of reach out. But there was, I think, a couple of things that was also came up in the research was inspiration makes a big difference. So hearing about other people doing stuff, people go, oh, I can do that. Like that's so. There's something about leadership in this time that um, is about creating examples or pointing to examples that other people can follow. That's like a catalyst that then allows people to then step up. But I think the other couple of things that came up was that the idea of. Um, needing permission because just as you were saying dan we have this view in our heads that not only other people aren't that kind but if i'm kind to them i'll be like for those in australia the mrs mankle from neighbors i'll be that annoying neighbor or that nosy team member who nobody actually wants to hear from um and this i think that's a real issue we have this view that when we like permission is required and COVID somehow gave us permission so one of the really interesting stats that came up during the research was a study that was done by a group called Common Cause Foundation over in the UK, and they had done a survey with thousand people, replicated it in other countries, and the same results keep coming up. That it in this particular study, seventy four percent of people declared that they had compassionate values, so that meant that they would help a stranger in in need if they felt confident and competent. What was fascinating to me about this study was that only 23% of that 74% believed that they lived amongst people like themselves. So this, there's this gap, right? This gap that keeps showing up around, I think I'm kind, but I bet my neighbours aren't. And so this, I, as you start to, and I really encourage everyone listening to start to notice how often we assume the worst in others, how often we assume ill intent, that we assume that people aren't going to be kind and how much that impacts our own behaviour. Oh, for sure. That's got to have a huge impact. So, so why, why is this? Um, is it, what's, what's the brain doing to us here, Gillian? What's going on in there? We've spent a long time talking about people need to have more empathy and things like that in in the world. And I think that's true. Although from a neurological perspective, empathy is the experience of taking in someone else's experience through um, mirror neurons on each side of our prefrontal cortex. We take in that experience, we run it through our own, what they call the pain matrix, the the effective, we, we feel what someone else is feeling. And if we feel pain, then we go, oh wow, they must be hurting. So that's kind of what empathy is. So there's 
um, some great work. A guy called Dr. Paul Bloom has done this um, big body of research of how that gets in the way, actually, of us being able to reach out and be kind to each other or help each other because we tend to um, more easily, well, one, it hurts. Like we don't necessarily want to hurt with someone else because that's not very comfortable. But two, it's much easier to imagine someone's experience if they look like me or I like them. And so empathy, relying on empathy alone is actually a pretty biased tool because it then means that we only really see and empathise with people who are in our in-tribe you know, that we like or that we feel similar to. That, but also power differential um, makes a big difference. So it's hard to empathise with someone in power. And as you grow in power and influence, you can't, you can't actually empathise with a group of people. We, as humans, we can only empathise one-on-one. In, that's how the kind of brain works. And so we need to take the experience of someone and then amplify or exemplify it across the group. Um, and that's, that's dangerous in leadership, I think, because then we miss out on the nuances of what's actually going on for individuals within a group and what actually might be the current. Because it's easy to listen to, you know, then confirmation bias comes in, right? I've, I've emphasised with one person and they've, they've agreed with me, so therefore I've got the group. But like, <laughs> mm, turns out that's not true. Yeah, and we were talking last week about diversity. It sounds like we're slightly rigged against embracing diversity but from, from that research. Would that be right? I think the biggest, like when we talk about the micro, mental micro skills, because it's easy to say intellectually, like, I, yes, of course I embrace all people. But when you're you know, neurologically in the context of difference, what emerges is discomfort. So discomfort of um, someone else's view that's different to yours or someone not being unpredictable because you can't empathise in the same way, therefore you can't predict what they're going to do. That is physically uncomfortable for us. We feel uncertain, we feel unsafe. And so a lot of the work we do is actually about helping people notice that experience and regulate around it and just go, oh, look at that. I'm feeling uncomfortable. I wonder what will happen next. Like the the ability, and I, I know you guys talk about this all the time, the curiosity, the ability to bring curiosity in the context of difference and discomfort is incredibly powerful, really important in teams and keeps us moving towards each other rather than pulling apart. And I think it's something that I... We talked about last week too, which was sort of stopping the process of of that judgment and making it was the interesting versus interested, and instead of making that judgment, getting curious, because that's when you actually you know you seek to understand and you find actually more commonality, and therefore you feel less threatened by the difference that you that you see in others, and then the humanness kind of sort of spans across those differences but it's quite sophisticated it's sophisticated machinery when we're under the pressure under the pump feeling stretched tired having our work environment turned upside down and other pressures so what do we lean on so how, do, how does a team cope with this so you you know you've got a team and everyone is individuals having an individual experience but how, how do you how do you embrace this as a team? Because it, it's a different type of conversation, I would imagine. I think that's so true. And I think the 
I mean, we all know this, the the water cooler conversations, the things that we would bump into each other and talk about in the corridor and not the things we talk about in a Zoom Zoom or a Teams meeting. I just made up a new thing there, Zeams meetings. um, We're we're missing the bits that allow, you know, we might see the dog walk through the background or the naked partner or whatever it is, but they're different to be able to say, how am I really feeling here? And I think we've said there's been a lot of, um, conversation over the last 18 months, which has been around how do we keep the human, like how do I know more about where you're at? But I think it takes like overcoming the discomfort, overcoming knowing the the way we're wired will keep us in survival mode if we're feeling uncomfortable is, is this ability to reach out and go, how are you? And, you know, it's corny that are you okay, but it's like the regularly checking in and saying, how are you? How's, what, what's life like for you? Allowing time for that conversation. And people will say, but I don't have time for that right now. Like everyone says, I don't have time for that. I'm so busy. I'm juggling, you know, whether I'm homeschooling or whatever. And sorry, remote learning, I should say. And I, I think we don't have time not to do it because if we don't do it, then everything else takes longer. All of you were talking about the stories and the judgments that we can make. I think those stories amplify in our heads without without real data to ground them. So if someone's in a bad mood, we assume that it's about us because we are the centres of our known universe and and we're really good at going, oh my God, I bet they raised their eyebrow because they don't agree with what I just said and oh, I wish I'd just read up more on that presentation. But blah, 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 blah. All of which completely distracts you and is unnecessary effort from the point that they just had an itchy eye. Like it's just those sorts of things that we do, our ability to connect helps us trust the signals that we're getting and then and make wiser choices. So a little bit of sort of last decade thinking was around about the difference between sympathy and empathy and really sort of not feeling sorry for people but empathising and understanding how they, how they feel. But I think I feel like we have motored into a whole more sophisticated space of this word around compassion which had a completely different sense for somebody in my sort of graying hairs um and it was something more it was a sort of it was a sort of softy not doing anything type feeling but actually it's a doing it's a doing thing isn't it it's so interesting because people often use empathy and compassion as like interchangeably and and I think what's interesting from a neurological perspective is they're very different brain functions. So for, for some of the research definition, empathy is, as I said before, taking in someone's experience through pain matrix, you know what they feel. Um, and there's this fantastic researcher in Germany, Dr. Tanya Singer, who's done some amazing work on this, where she would get people in to an fMRI scanner and scan their brains while she shows them pictures of people dreadfully suffering, like orphans in Romania and stuff. And and she takes great delight in seeing that brains light up in this pain matrix wagon. and she's kind of looking at that. Um, and But there was one part of the experiment she was doing um, where she got a, a long-term meditator, so someone who had been training their brain for over 10,000 hours, a guy called Mathieu Ricard, and she put him in the fMRI scanner and asked him to empathise, and so she did. he did that. But as she kind of went to do something else, so she was switching the experiment, He's and does different part of his brain lit up, and she's like, "Well, hang on, what's happened?" Because usually participants in the study 
that you, like it's hard to let go of images when you've been suffer like when you've seen people suffering. So you, often we ruminate about things for a long time and things like that. So she was noticing that in the scanner. But this guy had something completely different. This guy had a completely different area of his brain light up. And she said, well, what the hell are you doing? Well, she probably didn't say that. But anyway, I can imagine saying that. That's, that <laughs> and, sounds like a really good researching comment. What are you doing? Stop doing that. Don't stop doing that. Stop that immediately. Um, and he said, well, you've just asked me to empathise with these people. I'm exhausted, so I'm switching to compassion. She goes, like, well, what's that? She goes, well, I'm deliberately connecting with my own intention, my own wish that these people not suffer. And that they be happy and that they be well. And I, I can't do anything for them right now, but I can offer them my intention that I want them to not suffer. And what Dr. Singer had noticed was that the areas associated with love and reward lit up in their brain. So an entirely different part of the brain in, in, is connected with this sense of volitional intention. So it's like the research now would say that empathy is an emotion, like it's, a, it's actually a shared emotion. And that um, compassion is an intention. So it's something that we intend and it's usually connected with some sort of action. Wow. And we can, we can make choices around that. I think, Dan, it starts with awareness, right? So it starts with awareness to recognise that we're empathising because I think that, and, and it's not like, so I don't mean to paint empathy as bad because we, we, are, we are naturally empathic beings. We can't help but taking this to people, other people's experience. Um, but as we notice that we're doing it, um, often what can happen is that we can be almost hijacked by someone else's experience. I know some a leader during um, COVID last year had to shut down 90% of her operations. And what she found was she was so overwhelmed. It meant she was going to stand people down. And that was an area that didn't, you know, weren't able to receive job keeper or job seeker. And so they um, had this experience where she was so totally overwhelmed by the experience of what these people were going to go through, like just the, you know, the financial hardships, the relationship hardships. She became completely stuck and couldn't even communicate. And that's not helpful, right? Because in the moment, the leader, what people needed was to hear from her that, the, that some way or other they were going to make it through. There was going to be tough times, but they would, she would never give up on them. Something like that. But she, what she did was froze. And so when we over-empathise, that's what can happen. So as we notice that we're doing this, that we're taking on someone else's experience, it's almost like if we can stand back from that, just even in a microsecond to go, wow, look at that, I'm experiencing someone else's suffering and connect with our intention that we don't want that person to suffer, then a whole different sense of capacity arises in us because then we start to problem solve. We love our brains love a good problem solve. How you know, how can I help solve this problem? But I think it's doing it in a way that doesn't overexhaust ourselves, which is really important as well. So self compassion is also really important. And I think too, going back to that bit about the diversity and, you know, we looking for the differences or the similarities. Sometimes with empathy where it can go wrong is is if we don't empathize, then we think well, it's not worthy of empathising, so I'll judge. So we sort of go, <laughs> we take a back route. And and what compassion does is actually just suspend it as a human being and have compassion for people, even though they may have different choices, different ways of doing things, to be able to hold that. Otherwise, we go into, we go into judge, which means that we've just sort of undone everything. <laughs> and in a team, that's when when a team can start to form, you know, opinions about other people in the team and, and, and then it becomes stories and then we tell ourselves those stories and then 
you know, we feel like we've got the reality of it. You can see how it's so momentary, but we've, but it's, but it's important we catch ourselves falling into that, into that trap. So that the idea of mindfulness is training ourselves to catch ourselves. That's that's what it's all about. It's it like the Pali word for um, mindfulness is actually remembering. So it's remembering to not get sucked in to the stories that we're telling ourselves. We're labeling all the time. So the, the question is: Is the label helpful to you or not? And I want a really good example with a team. We had someone. We were talking about this idea of labeling and and did a practice of being awareness aware of that. And someone said, oh, I had this really annoying colleague who kept coming into my head and everyone kind of snickered because they all knew who it was. I didn't know who it was though. And, um, and so, and he goes, I just realized if I just label him knob, he goes away in my head and I don't need to, like, I can, like, I can feel different from that. And I'm in my head, I'm going, mm, yeah, okay, that's a, that is a label. I'm just not sure it's a helpful that label. That is, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a label. Anyway, and someone else said, it's so interesting because I have the same person into my head. And what I do is label them a bundle of anxieties. And it was really interesting because in that moment, you could feel the whole group just go, they kind of dropped a level because it was like, actually, now you're naming and the naming causes an inclination towards care, right? It's like if someone's a bundle of anxieties, we all know what it feels like to be a bundle of anxieties. I can actually relate to you. And your knobness doesn't annoy me so much in that moment because I don't label it as knobness. And that's the difference between judging because you don't feel you can have em- empathy, so you judge, and the difference between that and compassion. So a bundle of, of nerves, you're having compassion for somebody in that, in that state. And let's be frank, everyone's been a bundle of nerves at some point. And probably a knob as well. No doubt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, we just think we, we, we have this belief that we need to be perfect all of the time and we're, and we're not and nor is humankind and i think if you know leaning into that and embracing that with a view to what does it say about me how can we connect we may not be best friends <laughs> but how can we connect yes i think that's it isn't it? i can see this how labeling can really block off any compassion whether that's in a street like you started as you started Gillian or in a team or in a in a community so um Gillian you know we've covered so much ground and it's been a really deep dive into the mind um where can we start where can our listener um start here to 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 make some progress and start to to feel they're making some some differences as they try to embrace this we not me spirit we're talking about today well i think that one of the places is to start with yourself right so self-compassion is a thing um and being able to talk to yourself like you would talk to a good friend so often like if you know, if I asked, what's, what would you say to a good friend in a certain situation? And then what would you say to yourself? What we'd say to ourselves is horrible. And I think just, again, using this awareness to go, wow, would I say that to someone else? No. Okay. Let me back up a bit. Let me, so really kind of dialing this. And if anyone's interested to kind of explore that word, um, world more, the work of Dr. Kristen Neff in the States is amazing around self-compassion. So I've learned a lot from her. I think that's the first thing. The second is to make, if, if as much as you can between now and the end of the year, make time to connect with people, even if it's just five minutes to be able to say, how, how are you really? How are you and how are you really? That just allows just to, not having any agenda for whatever happens in the next five minutes, that 
that sense of de- really connecting can just um, defuse all of the stories because then we gather data from each other and we can kind of connect pieces that we might have otherwise made up judgments and labels about like we're talking about. And then really getting curious, I think, about the reality is as humans, none of us get out of bed to piss each other off. We really don't. Like we are, we get out of bed. We just want to be happy. Nobody wants to suffer. We are all the heroes of our own journey. And I think that if you can keep holding that in mind, even in the most annoying conversations, how is this person, the curiosity, how is this person just trying to get their needs met? And can I have empathy and com- and compassion for that? Because I just want to get my needs met too. So if we could just drop some of the the other, the blah, 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 that goes over the top of all of that when we're pretending that's not just how things are, then that can be super helpful and actually a hell of a lot less effort and a hell of a lot more. What I think is really interesting as well is when we come from that place of, I wonder what's going on for this person. Courage is another, interestingly, from a complex system courage arises and with courage teams can do anything well that's a great way to wrap up isn't it (laughs) what could be better than that uh jillian thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure and i think that you have inspired us all i hope at the end of this um of a trying year for the whole planet and uh just giving us some lovely reflective points as we go into this next holiday season uh, and a time for reflection so thank you so much for joining us today from lightning ridge (laughs) so lovely to be with you thank you The best part of this year is that I have worked with many, many teams debriefing Squadify. And I've really wondered, has it taken a pandemic and lockdown to make us really appreciate each other and the value of teamwork? You know, I have never heard a team say, well, this has been great. You know, I've got, I didn't, I didn't like doing out for coffee with people or I didn't like having lunches or, you know, thank God I don't have to go into the office. People have really missed one another, really missed one another. And that human connection, it has, I think has really become sharpened and a, and a focus. And, and we can, we can find a medium of being able to, work in the way that it's flexible and manage that, but actually probably appreciate each other a little bit more and the relationships that we have. It's so true. And I I do think there are ways of... Um, we can get better at doing that virtually, but we're built to connect, aren't we? And and I think the... um, You know, working in teams, you know, why do you even get into a team? Well, one of the things we've talked about a lot is actually about diversity or difference you know to to use it sort of to use a more simple word in a way but we are we want to get together in these little groups in order to take different views on problems to order in order to hear different things so you're inevitably going to be working with difference and it's so important not to sort of allow our some 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 of our emotions to be triggered by that but actually really enjoy that enjoy that diversity that difference in others and work with it and, and that Gillian's comments really reinforced it for me and I've seen teams blow apart because of difference but others cohere bring those differences together into something amazing and, and that is actually a choice that we make every day and I think that was where Gillian really sort of made that distinction around empathy and compassion and and I think compassion is something that really challenges us because it is intent it's an action orientated it's 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 acts 
acts of kindness it's 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 a it's a way that we relate rather than than a sort of static emotion that you may have which is an important part but it's actually showing somebody that you care (laughs) and actually showing that intent which is a different a different element and really thinking then you may not necessarily agree with the other person but you can still have compassion and i I love that idea that it's not the end point isn't empathy go on to the next point of of intent and it changes the way your brain is actually reacting to that situation and um it's a wonderful place to find us as we go into the festive season um to find us in that position where we can really think about how we can be compassionate and and do some things for others over this over this lovely time of the year so um very exciting opportunity and a real love actually note on which to end pier i think so uh, that is it for this episode and for this season we'll be back on the 14th of january with season two with loads of fabulous new guests from researchers to people working on the front line all across the world you can find show notes and resources at squadify.net just click on the we not me podcast link if you've enjoyed the show please do share the love and recommend it to your friends we Not Me is produced by Mark Stedman of Origin FM. Thank you so much for listening. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.